right, all right, all right. Welcome everybody to Freightonomics, where we combine the freight markets and the macroeconomic environment into one entity. So uh, relaying all that information for you. So hopefully you guys can go about your day more informed and better suited to make better decisions. Anthony Smith, lead economist here at Freightways with me as always, Zach Strickland, director of freight market intelligence, uh, leading the uh, the show up for you today. And we've got a pretty good show today. We've got Eric Coolidge, like he has written some of the most topical articles uh, over the last week or so uh, covering the FedEx situation, uh, Delta Air Cargo, uh, and of course the the Port of Savannah, uh, you know, situation. Out the tons of imports coming in there. They're having some delays because of some dredging and expansion. Uh, the Port of Savannah, of course, one of the most aggressive uh, growth ports in the United States, number three at the moment, but they've got their eye in the sky. So, uh, Anthony Smith, are you checking LinkedIn today? I'm checking LinkedIn. I am there right now as we speak. So if you're watching, it's Thursday. It's noon Eastern Standard Time. We're on LinkedIn. So if you have a question, want a shout out, feel free to leave a comment. Maybe I'll also check Facebook. I think we're also streaming on Facebook. I'll check it out there as well. Yeah, good stuff. So, uh, you know, it's been an interesting week in the freight market. We talked about, you know, if you watch Freight Waves now in the mornings, uh, starting at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, uh, you know, we've seen uh, some very interesting developments in terms of like overall, you know, capacity in terms of trucking. Uh, it, it's starting to tighten significantly now. Uh, you never know now after after COVID. We're kind of like yeah. in this this situation where you never know what's going to happen next because they've broken seasonality down. We haven't seen the same freight patterns that we normally see uh, throughout the year. Winter storms, cats and dogs living together, mass hysteria. <laughs> Uh, Bill Murray said. Uh, and, you know, the big question is, will this be like the start? Of, will this be the last big hurrah in the in the domestic freight market before it starts to kind of settle down again? Because we have been seeing uh, our tender rejection rates that we monitor here uh, drop from about 28% in March all the way down to 23%. Uh, not a significant <laughs> drop over that period of time, but it's still trending downward, easing. Yeah. July 4th is coming up next week at the, I should say after next week. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, but, you know, typically we see this tightening, Anthony, and yeah. it's not, you know, is, is this just a bump in the road or are we going to see some sort of return? You know, we just had prime day import demand still all time highs. What do you think? Yeah, I think so. Last week we were talking about, we, touched on, we might be living through the peak as we speak. So I know that I was talking about that from this perspective of manufacturing. We're looking at how new orders, which we'll talk about here a little bit later, new orders were just completely just on this ongoing trend of rise, 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 month after month for well over a year, essentially. I think there's maybe two months, three months of slight decline, but overall just upward movement. So expectations that, yeah, these new orders are going to have to come into production and get shipped out and all this other mm -hmm. stuff. But we might be looking at the peak, not of peak manufacturing, but really the peak of where new orders are going to be. And this is all going to move through that stream of manufacturing, production, to shipments, to moving downstream, to going to those companies, those businesses, and then also hitting the um, actual closer to consumers at some point in time when you get to like those final goods being made and purchased. But I do think we are maybe seeing a peak in for manufacturing right mm -hmm. now. 
I think that might be the case for a lot of other industries that are slowly starting to ramp up or come down with supply chain, as you, as you said, with trucking freight, we see these busy, busy, busy times. <laughs> and then it kind of comes back down to pendulum swings. Yeah. And a lot of times we are a little bit out of sync with the macroeconomy as things kind of tighten back up, loosened and tighten back up. I think well, the other big thing is how do we measure freight? And it's mm -hmm. not by GDP. It's not by these macro measures all the time. That's why we kind of look at this to use our tribal knowledge right. to look at what's going on within the macro environment and what the implications are going to be for freight. And then we're looking at diagnosing the health of the overall economy. We're looking at diagnosing the health of the overall freight industry. I don't think we can get too caught up in certain metrics, but the composition of those metrics. So I look at it almost as if it's um, body composition or weightlifting. <laughs> Back in the day, I used to be a pretty decent athlete, believe it or not. And 225 pounds looks a lot different on me now compared to what it used to look like on me. And so even if we have a 6.5% GDP growth or something like that for the quarter, the composition of it, what makes up that 6.5% is going to be different in comparison to right. what it is overall. That's a good point. Really. That's a good point. We're kind of in this, this period where, you know, we have multiple variables moving. Yeah. You know, you got current demand, uh, previous demand that still hasn't fully materialized yet and then future demand yeah uh, a lot of people are we're kind of at this pinnacle where you know if anybody that does wakeboarding or, or something out there that rides a wave uh, you have all these waves that come together at once and and the big question is is are all these three factors this this wavelength of people are trying to catch up their inventory from last year there's a huge amount of current demand going on right now for durable goods uh, and then since capacity has been so uh, you know, unavailable, they're pulling forward future demand. Yeah. <laughs> so they're, they're, all these things are, have been kind of coming together all at once. The winter storm event in February really exacerbated it. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that really inspired the pulling forward more than we, uh, than we think. Um, but it's been slowly kind of pulling down a, yeah. a little bit. In terms of overall impact to capacity, of course, freight rates are going up. Spot market activity is slightly easing. Uh, you know, it's really hard to tell just how long this pattern will have, but it's hard to think that things get much tighter from here. Yeah, and I mean, seasonality, like you said, is, is a thing, but some of those seasonalities aren't going to be as impactful. We have Steven Stotts here on LinkedIn, thanks for commenting, saying, wait till concerts come back in the fall. Those trucks will need to be, will be pulled out of the freight pool. So kind of talking about some of those seasonality trends. So definitely going to have some yep. sort of impact, but those seasonal trends, you say, might be a little bit more diminished in the grander scheme of things as we're kind of coming down. So yeah. it'll be this drop down, but these subtle blips along the way. Yeah, I don't. I, we're not out of the woods by any means. This is definitely, I think, we can safely say, and something we'll address here in the newsonomics a little later. Uh, some of the companies think that this is a long cycle. So yeah. let's get on to our memeonomics. <laughs> let's have some fun. All been waiting. So I didn't get a lot of time to do this this week uh, with the memes. There wasn't anything that really stirred me like last week. I had some pretty good memes last week. This one just kind of hit me because this was on uh, a site uh, called The Chive, uh, for those of you that are familiar. And it is, it's absolutely pop culture driven, uh, has nothing to do with, uh, you know, it's not newsonomics, but <laughs> this is, it has nothing to do with anything transportation, business, or it is just a random assortment of, you know, images and posts on the internet that they, they bring up. And the fact that anytime a truck shows up, <laughs> supercalifragilisticexpialogistics, <laughs> 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 it just made me chuckle. So I had to share it with everyone to, 
because it's, you know, not a lot of people, especially, you know, people that aren't in transportation have a clue. They see the trucks on the road. They don't know if they're big, small, indifferent. Yeah. Uh, when, the, when something like this shows up, it, it definitely, it, it's a sign to me that transportation, supply chain management, things like that have become more mainstream. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's because largely it's driven by the fact what we're talking about right now. Like yeah. the market's tight. People can't get their stuff right now. We just had Prime Day and they know why that, you know, their orders aren't getting there in a day. <laughs> you know, everybody knows that transportation is, is super hot right now. Yeah. And, and supply chain is now like the new financial sector. It's like the, you know, the sexy industry yeah. uh, to talk about. And it kind of happens. I know this is memeonomics, but every time there is that boom in supply chain, which always happens from time to time, things just go crazy and transportation's nuts. Tech just seems to just pour yeah. in. And all these tech companies, mm -hmm. these, like you said, it's just mm -hmm. like the new finance, the sexy exactly. thing within the, the, the world. But like, it just kind of pours in and it's cool to see some of these innovations. Then to kind of see what sticks when it slows down, you yep. know, like, all right, what was actually innovative? What was actually informative and meaningful, which was, or what was just a trend? Yeah, yeah, these disruptions are exciting in the way that obviously there's, they're a pain, yeah. but they're, they're also exciting in a way that they really drive innovation uh, the human race does a really good job at responding to problems. Uh, mm -hmm. And honestly, that's what drives economic growth. Yeah. Value add. Like in times of stagnation, we saw, I mean, you can call the 2010 to 2015, 16 period. Uh, it was a, probably one of the most stable, steady growth periods, but it was kind of criticized as being very stagnant. Yeah. Uh, we came out of the Great Recession, a lot of building blocks put in place. Uh, but there just wasn't a lot of huge innovation, not a lot of societal change, not a lot of things driving growth. Uh, and we got into the financial sector, which, again, very stable, good growth. Uh, but a lot of it was not driven by value addition, like value creation, which is what you have to have in the long term to have economic viability. Am I right? Right. That's yeah. correct. So let's move on. This one, this one to me, it, it's not really a meme. It's a LinkedIn post uh, by one Bridget Hyacinth, but it's found its way into <laughs> my searches for memes. <laughs> uh, this, one, this one's basically, I'm going to summarize this for you. Essentially, she's saying the people that she now hires, no longer do they need to be tied to a desk. Uh, work from home should be the new norm for people that it makes sense for, obviously. Uh, and she's basically saying this whole antiquated concept of you going into an office and warming a seat <laughs> yeah. for, uh, you know, from nine to five and then checking out that that really is an outdated concept. Mm -hmm. um, now, I know that for a lot of people it, it, and, and myself included, there are aspects of going into an office on a daily basis that I absolutely miss. Uh, obviously, we're in <laughs> sort of an office today, yeah. but. I, I, this this topic right here fascinates me because I think it's going to have an economic impact. Uh, the way that people it, back in the early 1900s when they decided to have Saturdays off, mm -hmm. you know, the Industrial Revolution, it revolutionized the way the economy worked because people had free time to go and buy things, yeah. to go and spend time with their families. They didn't have to go to work every day. I mean, not not that everybody worked, you know, every day of the week back then, but. There, this a creation of an additional day off actually improved the economy and allowed people to go out and buy cars. Mm. You know, Henry Ford was a huge proponent of this, um, you know, and established this pattern uh, yeah. of a day off. And so I think what we saw in the early part of the pandemic, people working from home, you know, some of them obviously unemployed, yeah, <laughs> as yeah. you well know, remodeling the houses. 
this is this is the type of societal change and shift that I'm really watching for to either sustain what we've already had uh, in terms of online orders and, and you know people remodeling houses, nesting, if you will. Yeah. I mean, they were really doing this exaggerated nesting. I, you know, I would love to hear your thoughts real quick on this to see what do you think the economic impact, do you think it's going to sustain? Or do you think, you know, obviously a lot of people going back into the office now, do you think we're going to kind of slowly drift back? Yeah, I think there's definitely going to be a drift back and I think there's going to be hybrid models for sure. But these work from home situations and scenarios, I think are going to be long lasting. And we look at generational shifts and behavioral aspects from those different generations. Millennials has been one of those main demographics that really kind of drove the, why are we having this meeting right now? This is a waste of time. I don't need to be here from this hour to this hour. I can get my work done in less time. Why am I still here? So I think that just kind of drives that forward a lot more quicker than what you would need to have, like say more millennials getting into leadership positions mm -hmm. and executive roles saying, hey, if you don't need to be here, don't need to be here. I think this kind of pushes that forward a little bit more um, as you get more millennials, more Gen Zers kind of being like, hey, we don't need to be here. I think that hybrid kind of starts to make more sense. There is some, for sure, some aspects of having that communal mm. um, setting for sure, of whether it's passive knowledge, sometimes you might be in an area, there's a conversation happening, you walk by, now you're a part of the conversation, and now there's just kind of that growth and, hey, this, there's a, an exchange that would have happened if this was virtual or digital. So yeah. I think there's those aspects, there's gains to both, but I definitely think there's going to be a hybrid moving forward. Um, and that's going to open up the, the market. I think wages are going to benefit from this, from some aspect, because there's going to be more possibilities for some people. You know, you can open up instead of just saying, hey, we can only hire within this certain neighborhood or the certain city, we can open up to throughout the country. I think that's going to drive up efficiency. Um, I think that's going to potentially help productivity in a certain areas. And so I think it's going to definitely depend on industries. But I think it's for sure it's going to end a lot of those. It's going to help bring you more utilization to people, for sure. As you said, back in the day, you can have that Saturday off and do a lot more shopping, more time with the family. And I think a lot more people, maybe they want more time with the family. Maybe they don't. Maybe they realize <laughs> that, hey, i got to Some people like more structure in a, in a, in a confined space some people do well having more freedom that's obviously a psychological thing and yeah. there's to each their own but i do think that we since we are definitely going to see more of this hybrid style uh being more pervasive especially depending on the industry and stuff obviously some uh factory workers can't yeah. <laughs> remotely uh, dial in to do their thing um but i i think this is actually a very positive move for the economy overall yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so I just I thought that one was a fascinating and post. Incentives. I yeah. mean, it's an employee market right now, mm -hmm. so people are needed to bring more incentives. Like, hey, you can work remote twenty four seven no, and, whenever. You know, Freightwaves is one of those. Uh, yeah. We're hiring thirty seven jobs open. Uh, <laughs> Check those out. Yeah, uh, so it's it's you know, and we have several remote people here. We're you know, I join that group every now and again, yeah. uh, <laughs> working, not coming into the what office. Question though, yeah. with this last meme, the. LinkedIn post, completely random. Mm -hmm. Do you ever get paranoid that you, you're going to message someone on LinkedIn and then you're going to turn into a post example of like, someone messaged me earlier today and they said this, I told them this, and they're actually mentioned, you know what I'm talking about? Like, <laughs> do you ever get paranoid that like, you're going to be that person that's going to be mentioned as someone's daily LinkedIn post material? 
I am constantly paranoid of any of my postings becoming <laughs> <laughs> uh, emails, uh, messages yeah. uh, becoming something because there are times where I uh, I will speak my mind a little <laughs> bit too clearly or directly, and of course, anything out of context. That's obviously a dynamic that is yeah, but really come to as an fruition. anonymous example for yeah. someone. Just like I got to hit my numbers today. Yeah. I got a message. I got a post. Yeah, that's the, the state of the world we live in. Anything <laughs> that we say can be condensed, turned into something that somebody can post, consume. Mm-hmm. Just, I try to stay out of it. <laughs> <laughs> Random thought. Yeah, so let's move on to our newsonomics uh, section. This is, of course, where we talk about what we find are to be the most interesting uh, news stories and topics of the day, uh, as determined by us, the uh, the, foremost, <laughs> the foremost experts on the subject. Uh First, first news story up today, this one comes from Freight Waves and the one and only Mark Solomon, uh, who does a fantastic job of covering uh, some of these larger uh, carriers out there. Uh, specifically, this one is UPS, uh, one of his favorites uh, to cover, uh, talking about how UPS peak season surcharges to whack mega shippers. So this is basically saying anybody that ships over a certain amount of freight uh, on the parcel side, obviously, because UPS sold off their LTL division, uh, they, uh, to TFI, uh, it, it is, they're basically saying, now this, this is a signal to me that UPS expects the fourth quarter peak to be massive. Yeah. Like this is, this is all this is telling me in a nutshell is fourth quarter, we're going to have a lot of volumes and a lot of reason to upset customers because we're going to charge them more. <laughs> yeah. Anytime a carrier does this, they know they have leverage and they, they have the ability to do it. This is not something that a lot of shippers are accustomed to. Um, they're also going to charge more for uh, increased handling. Uh, so, you know, we, you know, we're going to talk to Eric uh, Coolidge here in a little bit about the FedEx story and, and that and how they've come in and said, okay, we're not going to pick up at certain areas, reduce service times, et cetera. All little tricks of the trade in terms of like trying to make sure that you are operating in the most efficient manner with the highest value add as possible. <laughs> um, yeah. And UPS, uh, essentially anybody that's, moved over 25,000 shipments per week <laughs> since the pandemic began uh, is going to get this charge. And of course, bigger, bulkier orders of, are going to also get a surcharge from October 31st to January 15th. So I'm thinking fourth quarter, uh, everybody's still expecting a peak season, uh, yeah. you know, a big booming peak season. Uh, 2018 uh, is the last year that we had this type of you know, extended capacity crunch. Trucks came back online in the third, fourth quarter. Uh, huge additional uh, fleet <laughs> expansions, uh, owner ops, etc. Everybody bought a truck. This tells me that's not like they don't even see uh, possibility of this because they're announcing it in June. Yeah. This is June. <laughs> Early on. Yeah. This is this is this, we are months away from this happening, and they are so confident uh, they're going to go ahead and just throw it out there. Hey guys. <laughs> yeah. So with this increase or the surcharge, are they going to sit on these in- their surcharges or do you think this is likely going to get passed on? I mean, obviously, with any carrier, you're you're likely to see some of this pulled back, not for everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, some of the larger shippers are probably going to have some leverage here. But UPS is huge. Yeah. <laughs> like they're massive uh, partial. It's far more. It's far less fragmented than the truckload sector. There's not a lot of options out there. You got two or three. <laughs> uh, you know, people to use, uh, including the postal service. <laughs> so 
it's it's just not a uh, it's not an environment the same way that you see it in the truckload sector, for instance, where there's thousands of carriers available, yeah. not a lot of competition in the parcel side. So yeah, they're gonna they're definitely gonna have this hold up. Um, and you know, my question here is, you know, I, I you know, is this the right move? Like personally, from a business standpoint, I like it mm-hmm. because one, they don't have a lot of competition. It's not gonna you know, but it's also a short term thing. So instead of them going out and investing in a ton of like new capacity that they know won't be needed over the next bit and also is not available to grow at this point, um, they're saying, all right, this is what it is. Instead of us losing money on, you know, having to, you know, sustain this massive network of of shipments, we're going to take advantage of it, bring it in house. Uh, And it's just going to be a short term thing. And it's, I think the other good thing is, is like you said, it was mentioned so early. Yeah. So make adjustments if you need to. Best budgets, of luck. Budgets are a thing. Yeah. That's, that's the big and it's not something that they're just kind of tacking on at the last minute. No. Just surprise people. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. But, yeah, confident in that yeah. final quarter. Yeah, yeah. So the fourth quarter, look out. Uh, <laughs> uh, and the next story. Now, this is uh, the FedEx situation. We're going to talk to Eric here in a little bit more detail about it. Uh, FedEx service issues uh, amid roaring LTL market. Uh, ahead of cancellations, and Todd Maiden covered this, basically saying uh, FedEx, is, you know, they're they're bringing stuff back online. Yeah. <laughs> they 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 removed the, some of the service uh, last week. Now they're bringing it back, saying, "Uh oh," because <laughs> some of those downstream, and we mentioned this last week, some of those uh, you know uh, people that they were reducing the service for actually provided uh, material and goods to some of their larger customers. So it yeah. disrupted the larger customer base, you know, with the smaller customers who paid the freight. <laughs> um, whoops, a <laughs> <laughs> uh, little bit more, uh, targeted approach. They're going to take a little bit more targeted approach, they say, uh, but on in the article outside of FedEx, uh, which we'll get into detail here in a little bit, um, talks about the LTL sector in general. Mm-hmm. Um, Old Dominion, is investing in adding capacity. Now, for an LTL provider, this is a big deal. And so they're also, you say, the gold standard. Yes. Old Dominion is the gold standard, has been for the last probably five to six, seven years. Uh, uh, In LTL, they have one of the best networks, uh, service, reliability, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, They go on and say they are basically going to invest, two. they have $275 million invested in real estate or they're going to invest yeah. in real estate over the next bit, which complements the $290 million of fleet expansion. So in LTL, that's the point here is LTL has to grow real estate as well as trucks. Yeah. Carriers, they just go out and buy equipment. Right, right. <laughs> LTL has to buy land and space and docks and dock workers. It's far more complicated. They are doing that. So they're, they definitely see some long-term expansion mm-hmm. being uh, permanent. <laughs> yeah. Um, outside of just simple market share. These yeah. are huge investments. Um, also, another trend or another topic inside this article, uh, LTL are actually leaning on 3PLs to vet shippers. <laughs> uh, LTL carriers, which is uh, something that's extremely fascinating to me because this is the reverse of what has happened in the past. Mm-hmm. Traditionally, 3PLs, these you know, third-party logistics providers, are vetting carriers. And shippers use them this way. So this, to me, like stands out as like, I think that's what we're seeing in the truckload space as well. They're now betting uh, shippers. Yeah. And now you as a shipper who has had leverage and has had and done the betting yeah. is on the other side of the coin. <laughs> because as a shipper, like, 
from their perspective, you don't want to deal with someone that's difficult. I mean, yeah. you, like you said, historically we've seen shippers being able to kind of pick and choose mm -hmm. because, you know, you, you're going to want to move this for me or you want to be able to do business with me. But now everyone wants to do business with you. Everyone's trying to move something. So a lot more shift in that dynamic. It seems yeah. Like. Yeah. yeah I, I, I mean, that's, you know, how long will this last? We'll obviously go back at some point, I would yeah. assume, uh, to where it's the other way around. But yeah, for now, uh, Vetting shippers uh, and it's LTL of choice that much more. Yeah, no, LTL cares. Actually, this is a very. I mean, this is why FedEx was doing what they were doing. Mm -hmm. Like they are uh, in LTL, you care a, a lot more about what type of freight, what type of dock, what type of consignee you're going to. All sort, way more questions for LTL to shipper versus TL to shipper, truckload to shipper. Um, and of course, uh, the big. It's this isn't really news at this point, but. They're showing huge improvement in yield uh, year over year. Uh, Old Dominion was in the mid-teens, uh, uh, you know, up revenue per hundred weight uh, was up by the mid-teens in percentages. Um, this, no, no shock here, but rate increases effective. They're happening. Yeah. If you're a shipper out there, you, you know it's coming. There may be another one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's, that's basically what I'm seeing here is that this cycle is persistent. LTL stands to really have a little bit more ground and more permanence in it uh, versus the truckload side uh, because they're investing in it <laughs> and their, uh, their rate increases are far more successful, which they don't come down mm -hmm. like truckload can. Truckload can adjust really fast because the spot market activity, LTL, does not have the spot market presence. You don't just spot out. There's not a big spot market for LTL. Gotcha. Yeah. So the rates don't adjust as quickly. This is what the show was started on, <laughs> is that educational, educational. That freight market world and how it kind of, maybe we should kind of go back to that for like a throwback episode of just like, <laughs> welcome to this episode of Freightonomics. This is what yeah. we're going to cover today. This is what you're going to learn about. Yeah. No, well, the point of the show is information and yeah. uh, hopefully you get it. So the last, this, this one I feel like is, is kind of yours if you want to call it out. I found this in the Wall Street Journal newsletter. Uh, <laughs> That, that comes out. Uh, this is this this to me. I, I actually am shocked by this number. <laughs> like I did not think that it would be this large. Tell us what I'm talking about. Are you talking about the 11 billion? 11 billion. What is that number? <laughs> the estimated overall spending by U.S. consumer during Amazon's two-day Prime event. I. It, it's a 6.1 percent jump over last year's sale, according to Adobe yeah. Analytics. Yeah. That. We have been spending money as a society <laughs> on, on these goods for the last year. The fact that we still have this much pent up ability it's not to, gonna stop. to to and we find stuff that we need. Yeah. Like this yeah. is this, if you are a carrier, shipper, broker, didn't this is a sign to me that we are at <laughs> we are we are still cranking. Yeah. <laughs> as consumers, e economically speaking, we are still cranking. And your feelings indexes, uh, consumer confidence. This to me is more of a feelings index than the consumer yeah. confidence because this Consumers tells me they're feeling confident. They are obviously confident because they spent their money. They put their money where their mouth is. Uh, Eleven billion dollars, six point one percent jump. Yeah. God help us in the fourth quarter. Yeah, and that's <laughs> what we were talking about last week of like saying, yeah, don't get too caught up in this downward movement from these retail sales. Amazon Prime is going to come save the day, and yeah. it's done just that. It's bolstered i think this month's re, uh, results we're probably gonna see that seep into the july but 
after that, I think is where it kind of gets interesting after we kind of get out of those, you know, Christmas in June, yeah. Christmas in July retail holidays to kind of see how that kind of moves forward with less of these states providing these bonus benefits. We've seen a lot more states peel those back. So they're going to have less incentives for people to kind of have those initial jobs claims, which we're going to touch on here in just a few moments. But looking at that, it's going to be, I don't know, it's, it's so interesting to just see the American people spend. The thing is, their savings rate is still very high from those uh, initial stimulus packages and all of 2020, those bonus benefits. So the savings rate is still high. We were talking about last week how um, delinquency rates aren't where they were. Um, people have been paying off credit card debt. So I think they have a little bit more flexibility and spending on their credit cards. So even if they don't have the cash on them, they're gonna might, they might use some more of that credit and utilize some of that more of those credit cards. So, I mean, is this really a function of the stimulus? Like, I mean, we had such a high unemployment rate and the economy is as good as it's ever been. Yeah, and I think it's gonna <laughs> come down to that other point of composition. Like, what's the composition of it all? Yeah. Is it really solid 225 or is it a, a soft 225, you know? So we'll see. I mean, and, and are there, is there a huge variance? Are we just seeing like, you know, is there like huge losers in this and huge winners that are yeah. just kind of evening it out? Is the spread widening? Uh, and some of those losers always being brick and mortar in this yep. case, yeah. um, which have been slowly starting to kind of ramp back up, especially those clothing stores. I think just as a shock from them opening back up just because it's been almost null throughout, you know, most of the pandemic. But Starting to see some of that on yeah. all, all cylinders, not quite everywhere, but starting to see that expansion. Give us but, a quick update on some economic stuff. Yes, so to... it's Thursday, so we had initial jobs claims, and it went down, kind of. It went down to 411,000 initial jobs claims, down from 412,000 initial jobs claims the week before. It's not a big drop. Not a big drop. It's almost like a rounding error. It's okay. Sense. <laughs> and so it's, 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 we saw an increase last week. Mm-hmm. And we see this, or sorry, two weeks ago, yeah. um, and we see this another movement within the 400,000 mark. And so that 400,000 range is almost more psychological than anything because we're seeing these consistent pandemic lows week after week after week. And then we see one week up to a well over 400,000, another week still in the 400,000, and it's just kind of more psychological. We're seeing a lot of variables at play here, whether it's more these metropolitan areas inflating the numbers. These larger states inflated the numbers compared to some of the other states because it's going to be a state-by-state basis. So some states might be at full employment while other states are not or nowhere near it. Um, of course, it's going to be a industry Are there different states? Like, I mean, are we talking about like there's certain regions that really pop out? I mean, anybody that's looked at granular data versus yeah. the aggregate stuff, there's got to be some states in there that are kind of pulling that number, you know, holding it up. And some that aren't. Are there? Yeah. Are we seeing any specific states that are really driving this? Or definitely, I think California has been one. New York has been another one um, that are keeping it higher. Keeping it higher. Oh. Um, we're looking at states. I think they're doing pretty well. Florida has been one. Um, we've also seen states peel back their um, individually um, ahead of the federal deadline of those bonus benefits. And so we're seeing more states being like, "Hey, no, get back to work." Right. Get, get this kind of moving again. And so we're starting to see that happening across the board. So that's becoming more and more prevalent throughout the, the country. Um, but there's going to be those frictions of like, hey, childcare, this is going to be a thing now. Right. How do I do this? I've been able to work remotely or not work at all. Mm-hmm. Or there's been some cases where people are going to be terminated if they don't get vaccinated because that's been kind of passed now. So if you don't get vaccinated, you might get terminated in some jobs. And so 
if that's not you know really your thing at all, you might just forego that. Say, hey, this is my market to get a job. Everyone's hiring. I'm going to go to these initial jobs claims for now. File for unemployment until I can find this job. My question for that one is, and this is not a question probably for you, but can you do that? <laughs> fire because you don't want to get a vaccine. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's happening right now. So there's a lot of industries that are doing that. I know healthcare, medical fields, that's happening right now. Um, certain nurses kind of being mandated in certain aspects. So that's going to be a thing as we see how these consumers move. And I think that's all going to come down to how spending is going to kind of play out and how these volumes are going to get impacted towards the end of the year. Um, so right now, consumers are in a great place. That confidence level that we're always talking about, consumer yeah. confidence, another good indicator of confidence is the quit rate. So right. the pace that people are voluntarily separating from their workplace, that's at near record high. So people are feeling very confident. But uh, with that, that's like everything else is seasonal. Yeah. So those people that enter the workplace with these really cool incentives, these really cool benefits that they're able to kind of, you know, really negotiate, they're going to be in much better position compared to at the end of this trend where people are just like, hey, I just need a job. What's left? Right. I've been riding this way for as long as I can. Now benefits are ending. Um, I, I need a job. How do right. I get back into workplace now? So I think those early on adapters to get back into workplace are going to be in a much better position. Well, I know we got a few more things to do, but let's, let's jump into Let's bring Eric on. He's let's. been waiting patiently. Uh, we definitely want to make sure that we get to him today. And I'm going to embed uh, something into what he's at, our whatonomic sector. I'm going to get Eric's input on this because it is the Air Cargo Index. And Eric Kulich, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us here today. Uh, he's our air cargo specialist. Uh, yes. I definitely lean on him and his articles for, uh, for a lot of that information. But you don't just cover air. You you branched out, man. You're covering FedEx and, and Savannah. Yeah, yeah. I wrote a port story yesterday about the port of Savannah and dredging issues there, uh, causing some vessel delays. So uh, I like to think of myself as a trade and supply chain uh, reporter, journalist. So, but uh, a lot of focus right now on air cargo. Yeah, yeah, no, air cargo has been, obviously has been impacted dramatically uh, here over the last year with the pandemic. And, you know, I I think what I'd like to get from you initially is just kind of give us, before I ask you a little bit more about your stories and and FedEx and and the Savannah story, which is super topical right now, uh, give us a kind of what you've seen in the air cargo space over the last few months, because we, it kind of like, Air cargo itself has grown as a, per, a percentage of the overall business of a lot of these passenger uh, carriers. What are you seeing right now as some of these more permanent trends? Do you think that cargo is still going to be as big of a focus moving forward, especially looking at the prices? <laughs> uh, do you think that's going to stick around? Right. So uh, great question. Um, you know, the market air cargo is kind of like the rest of the supply chain. I mean, it's just chaos everywhere, you know capacity crunch, uh, just like on ocean, just like on trucking um, and rail. So, you know, capacity super tight. Prices on lots of the major lanes are, you know, two or three times higher than back in 2019. You know, uh, carriers are definitely in the driver's seat and it's really hard finding space on planes. And you know, the main reason for that is so much of the passenger travel is taken down and even though some of it's coming back some, you know, the big freight uh, that's carried is in international wide bodies and international travel 
you know, planes aren't aren't really back uh, very much yet because there's still so much COVID restrictions around. So, you know, um, there's still probably a 15 percent you know gap in capacity over normal, and demand is shooting out the roof because supply chains, as you said, have low inventories. There's e-commerce. People are uh, trying to restock and get ready for the fall season. So it's just a perpetual peak like it is everywhere else. And so, you know, a lot of these passenger airlines went to uh, kind of help to fill the void a little bit by taking their passenger planes and a lot of them and making them into auxiliary freighters, just running them with, uh, you know, not as efficient as a full freighter. You can't fill the whole plane, but uh, at least using the, the belly cargo. Um and in a few cases, taking out the seats. So um, that will probably start to moderate a little bit. I heard Austrian Airlines is not going to run any more of those planes as they start to put the aircraft back into passenger service. And so gradually, as more passenger planes come into the market again, you'll have a little more capacity. And so rates should moderate. But when that happens, is not really clear. I mean, I think we're going to see pretty tight uh, capacity and rates throughout this year um, and you know maybe maybe it'll um, moderate some next year but some of these passenger airlines are really doubling down or realizing that they ignored cargo at their peril or, or you know made it as kind of a second class business line and realize how important it is so you've seen Air Canada say we're going to actually stand up a whole freighter division you know run passenger planes and some freighters with some converted planes westjet another canadian carrier yesterday said we're going to get four narrow body planes and run a small um, you know regional cargo network um and other airlines like delta and so forth are maybe not be adding freighters but they're definitely putting more cargo fodder planning into their network decisions yeah let's uh so you mentioned rates were obviously elevated. I want to pull up what was going to be in our whatonomic section. This is the uh, Transportation Air Cargo Index. Uh, this is the spot rate uh, per kilogram <laughs> for shipping uh, freight uh, from uh, three lanes here. I've got Shanghai, Hong Kong, and uh, Frankfurt to North America. They're all coming to North America because this is, uh, you know, the audience is North American and uh, it's probably the more interesting uh, lanes to them. Uh, this these rates, like, I mean, you can see clearly where the pandemic began. Uh, and then, it, but it, the interesting aspect to me is that they kind of fell really quick uh, there in the beginning. And then they, they never really came back down to where they were. Um, and we're actually trending higher. And you know this, Eric, that this has been a very seasonal pattern <laughs> for these rates over the past several years where we have this fourth quarter peak and then they come back down and you know, and you see that Frankfurt one, not that interesting until the pandemic. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what you see in these numbers right now and what you're taking away from them? Well, um, you know, it's just like what you outlined. I mean, I think there's been a little bit of, you know, there's been a few fluctuations uh, up and down, um, but, you know, it's still at that high elevated level. So even if certain weeks the, the rates dip a little it's, it's they're still high relatively speaking and um and especially out of the you know china and asia markets um you know it's it's you know really elevated i, I think uh, transatlantic's a, a little bit less uh but uh 
but I still think that the demand is so high and, and the rates are, um, you know, well, well above historical levels, but not, not quite as high as the Asia rates. Yeah. Do you think the maritime is still having, I mean, is this, is this still shippers trying to get around the, the maritime congestion as well? That's a great point. So all these things are interrelated in a way. And, and uh, yes, there's a huge, I don't know, I don't know how much to quantify, but there's a lot of activity of, of shippers trying to, you know, move, divert, do boat conversion to air um, because of the problems on the ocean side, the, the massive congestion in China, then at the inbound ports. So there's a lot of that going on, but, you know, it's tough to get to find space on aircraft. You might have to wait you know, several days after you book to, to get on a plane, you know, unless you're paying, you know, extra premiums or surcharges. So it's uh, it's, it's not a foolproof or fail-safe, uh, you know, alternative. So, Eric, um want to bring up one of your top stories that you just had not too long ago regarding Delta and talking about their cargo-led strategy. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, yeah, it goes uh, back a little bit to what we were talking about at the top of the segment, and that's, uh, you know, I think Delta would admit that, you know, they've always carried cargo in the bellies of their plane. It's been part of their operation, but it was kind of a, a sideline business. And now with the pandemic, they ran uh, about 2,600 cargo-only flights, and and with lots of these carriers, you know, the cargo revenue is, is skyrocketed um, because the rates are so high and um, they and that's really helped their bottom lines because they're not having much passenger business until recently. So, you know, there's been a reevaluation and um, and the reassessment of how important how we could capitalize on cargo. And so in Delta's case, you know, they are um, it's not so much that they're adding freighters, which they're not doing. Or you know, they're actually pulling back now on their cargo-only flights, um, but they're making cargo really at the center of the decision-making process. Uh, whatever new routes they're setting up, or when they're reopening a, a lane and deciding what where to go for a city pair, cargo is making is a big part of that decision because cargo now will make it determine whether the flight's profitable. And so, rather than being a sidelight, it's right there at the top deciding which routes, which lanes, which types of planes to put in service and, and the cargo's, you know, carrying a big amount of that uh, that revenue right now. So, um, yeah, much more important for them. So are they going to, uh, you know, basically, are they planning on this being, you know, some portion of this being a permanent aspect? Because, I mean, I think we all kind of know that eventually some of these cargo volumes are going to translate into other modes uh, back again as trucking capacity eases. Um, you know, especially domestically, rail capacity, whatnot. Are they are they planning on any kind of like a permanent increase in their exposure to this air cargo stuff? Well, you know, I think there's I think there's some real yes and no. I think there's some realization that in, in among the shipper community, just logistics uh, overall, that you need to have some more resilience and better supply chains, and so. Um, you know that that air cargo will be used a little bit more than maybe than in the past to to get around bottlenecks or to just keep the, the pipeline going. And so, and then there's just trade growing. And so I think the airlines think that some of this will be permanent to a degree. But you know I think what you're seeing in Delta's case is that 
Uh, we're hoping for some more air cargo, and we're planning to emphasize it more, try and capture more market share, work with the freight forwarders more closely. But they're not investing, except with those exceptions I mentioned, they're not going out and investing in freighters and going, you know, all the way in in that regard. It's because it, that would be a big bet on a volatile market that has peaks and valleys in certain years. And so why do that? Just like in trucking, you know, everyone runs out and gets a whole bunch more trucks and the economy shifts and you're stuck. So um, I think it's more just managing the assets they have, being smarter and we're and, and trying to emphasize getting more cargo on those passenger planes. So Eric, taking a step back, I think we kind of mentioned it at the top of the show and something you also alluded to about this activity really kind of being strong throughout the remainder of 2021 and going into 2022. But wondering, have we hit a peak and is this going to just kind of be the range that we potentially just see moderating between now and the next coming months? You know, I saw in the article that you also saw that there were some pretty substantial forecast expectations, but are we going to expect that this is going to be the peak that's just going to kind of moderate for the remaining months and kind of going into 2022, or is there more upward movement to be had? Well, um, yeah, I think, you know, I think it's kind of a mix. You're going to have more volume coming in because of the peak shipping season, but then you're also going to have some more, a little more airlift with us, passenger aircraft, um, you know, and, and some of these uh, travel restrictions being loosened in a lot of countries. So there'll be a kind of a balance there, some more capacity, but also more demand. I I think just like an ocean, you're going to see, you know, pretty much a perpetual peak through the end of the year. I mean, I was on a call with a logistics company yesterday and, you know, they were saying for ocean, at least uh, they thought it's going to be perpetual peak or high the way it is now all the way through Chinese Lunar New Year, I guess mm-hmm. next February. So then and then maybe we'll see something change. And so, you know, I think it's going to be similar for air until then. Right, right. So uh, you mentioned Ocean and you just wrote an article about the Port of Savannah uh, dredging, uh, making some delays over there. Now, the I'm going to pull up a chart here for this one uh, because this one has relevance across the entire supply chain to me. Uh, anytime you have a disruption at a port that's kind of like an overflow valve or acting like an overflow valve, like Los Angeles, Long Beach, New York, New Jersey, a lot of the freight's coming into Savannah right now. And I've got our inbound uh, T, Ocean TU uh, volume index overlaid on top of Savannah's outbound tender rejection index. Uh, and the inbound TU index, of course, a measure of how much freight or t- how many TUs uh, are shippers booking going into the Port of Savannah from all the various places. And you can see there that it jumped up in uh, the early part of the year. And for anybody in the freight market, if they'd have seen this, <laughs> or in the domestic freight market, if they'd seen this, they would have seen what was about to happen to the tender rejection index. Uh, and this occurred before the winter weather situation. Uh, and, and you talk about it in your article, Eric, how you know the Port of Savannah had uh, some disruptions and this dredging, they're, they're looking to expand this, this port over time, but this timing of this uh, you know, project, how big of an impact did it have on their ability to kind of like offload some of these? Did it add to the congestion significantly? Um, well, it's hard to gauge, um, it, it, you know, talking to the officials there, to the port director, um, you know, they're downplaying it, that there's, it's temporary. Um, and so they're saying the impact's pretty minimal. Um, you know, earlier this year, with all that overflow, you said 
coming from uh, some of the other ports and then fog issues they have in March. Uh, you know, there were upwards of 20 vessels anchored offshore uh, waiting for a berth. Now it's about four to six vessels. And um, so, you know, things have gotten a little better in that regard. But still, those are vessels that are waiting rather than just going straight to their berth. But uh, so the, the stretching project is a, a huge, massive project to dredge the entire Savannah River from the mouth of the ocean to the uh, to the to the river port, and uh, and so now they're getting to the stage that they're about to wrap up this three quarters of a billion dollar project. But now they got to dredge the berths and all the dredging equipment's right there, and the timing's unfortunate because who envisioned this would be such a crazy volume time of year in the dead of summer? So. But they have to do it. And uh, so apparently it's causing only a, a day, probably about two days wait for some of these vessels. Um, so not that big a deal. But when you're in a crunch like this where everything's already backed up, you have some weather issues, you know, the, the, you know, the roads, the trucking, the container stacks uh, are already backed up for days. Um, you know, any extra pressure is, is bad news. So. It's temporary and it's unfortunate, but you know it's not uh, it's not massive, but it is another chink in the armor. Yeah, this feels like one of those a traffic accident when you already have a traffic jam <laughs> uh, type <laughs> situation. So, uh, you know, so did they already had they planned this? Was this something that had to happen, or did they? You know, obviously you have to plan things like this to an extent, right? Yeah, I mean, the Port Authority, the Port of Savannah didn't have that much control over it. It's the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and their dredging contractors. And that's, you know, the contract stipulated, you know, the timing and they got done with the other stuff, all the equipment's there. Um, they can't like postpone it for months till peak season's over. So I guess they just had to bite the bullet. Yeah, ouch. So, Eric, of course, you're always reporting on these large macro trends, these significant stories within the industry. But I'm curious because every once in a while I start looking around as to like something that might be a little, you know, canary in the coal mine or maybe a smaller trend that people need to kind of pay attention to that might not be a big thing yet. Is there anything in the air cargo space that you're seeing that isn't quite a huge story or not quite picking up momentum, but you're kind of keeping your eye on in the meantime? Um, yeah, I've written about recently and, and something that could add to some of the, you know, so we've talked about how much the, how much traffic there is in all these modes in air cargo. And, and one of the ripple effects of that or one of the things we're seeing at some of the major gateway airports, uh, LAX, Chicago, JFK, Atlanta, some others is some pretty bad congestion on the land side that the, the, the Freighters come in and the ground handling, the warehouses are jammed. They can't, you know, truckers can't to retrieve freight for days uh, to take to the forwarders. So there's just, it's it's a combination of too much volume, not enough labor, um, you know, not great uh, technology or, or systems links uh, between all those stakeholders. So, um, so one of the things that's happening now is new uh, international TSA air cargo security rules to screen 100% of air freight, no matter what type of plane it's on. Uh, for a long time, we've been screening, x-ray screening or canine screening any shipment that goes in the belly of a passenger plane. Now, July 1st, new rules going to screen, screen anything that goes um, in a freighter uh, outbound or export. So that takes more floor space, more time you know, to check the freight. 
more, um, you know, longer window deliveries because you got to get it there a little early to allow for time. Um, and so on top of all these backups and, and congestion issues, this could add a little extra workload and time constraints to these forwarders and the uh, ground handlers at the airports. Yeah, there's insult to injury there. <laughs> so uh, right. you know, one more topic we've got to cover before we, we let you go here. The FedEx situation, obviously one of the biggest stories of the week. LTL was my background and you know, they canceled their customers <laughs> uh, last week, a big announcement, and then they started pulling it back because they didn't realize, oh, wait, those customers actually impact our bigger customers mm -hmm. as well in some aspect. Tell us, uh, give us a, an update on what you've seen in this in this developing story. Well, yeah, the, um, you know, Freightways uh, had the story first uh, about two weeks ago almost now, and um, and as you said, they, they cut off about 1,400 customers and, and you multiply that by multiple locations. So it was, the impact was a lot more, but a lot of these customers might've been smaller to mid-size, but some of them also supplied big box retailers like Lowe's and Costco and probably Target and others. And so there was you know, ripple effects because all of a sudden stuff wasn't showing up at the you know, at the stores. Um, so did, the big, sitting, did the big guys initiate this? Was this like Target and Home Depot or somebody like complaining and it, you know, it, they, did they notice it? I mean, it seemed like it happened real fast. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I don't have the smoking gun on that, but um, my reporting is that uh, Lowe's was not happy and uh, made its displeasure clear of some of the initial customers or, or, Suppliers that we know got the service suspension lifted first, uh, we noticed were were Lowe's the shippers. So, um, you know, trying to put two and two together, there might have been some correlation there. Um, and so, you know, it, it sounds like those guys have a little more weight if they complain than the, the smaller guys. But I think overall, there was just a lot of blowback from a lot of customers saying, "Hey, you gave us less than 24 hours notice." You know, we're you know, we can't just find capacity under the snap of a finger. And so, you know, I think they they realized they were getting some bad uh, public relations on it and, and shifted gears. Um, you know, one source also mentioned, and it's a little speculative, but it makes sense that a lot of these customers also ship parcel with FedEx. And if uh, the LTL side didn't communicate or coordinate with the parcel guys, there might have been some internal uh, discomfort because now the customers are wondering, are you cutting off my parcel too? Or, you know, we thought we were a strategic customer and, you know, had, we're involved in the big picture and now you cut us off here. So um, not 100% sure, but, you know, it seems like a, a logical assumption. Yeah, I don't think it's a big stretch to think that there's a little bit of internal uh, issue going on there, especially, I mean, any big company. Anybody that's worked in a larger company knows you get siloed up and certain divisions don't communicate effectively. And then, of course, when you're making those kind of large decisions there, you just don't. There's all these unforeseen consequences downstream that you you think you've got it plotted out, but you forgot. Oh, wait, this is a Lowe's supplier <laughs> uh, that we've just right. disrupted. And now Lowe's is not right. going to be able to give us their shipments. I, yeah. I mean, that that lines up to me. That checks all the boxes. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think, Anthony? Yeah, I agree with that. And yeah. it's just that that rainfall effect or that, yeah. that downstream effect of just like wow this really mounted up real quick let's 
it wasn't the best move. Well, this is why this is yeah, this is why companies of that size don't make fast decisions because <laughs> it takes it takes so much more energy and time to kind of figure out all the different moving parts. I know personally, I've made decisions that I didn't see, uh, you know, certain consequences down the road that uh, that blew up on me. So I. Yeah, that's that's almost the yeah. The, uh, the sense I got from doing my reporting on it was that the FedEx freight decision kind of came out of left field and very quickly. So you know, I don't know the internal politics or dynamics of how, but it, it, it looked like it was rapid and rushed out to the field very quickly. So you know, yeah, twenty four hours. Exactly, that the implementation process was there, but there was some seemed to be a speed factor that might have tripped them up. Yeah, that that is fascinating to me that it was a 24-hour notice to these customers as you reported and that like that that that's the only part of this whole thing that I'm kind of like eh <laughs> like, but even the even the even the even the internal communications between like FedEx management down to the FedEx sales reps or the you know the you know mid-level within FedEx freight it all kind of you know my reporting is that it you know came down pretty quickly hey, go spread the word to the customers. And so it was just very fast internally and then, you know, external communications as well. Yeah, right on. Well, hopefully some lessons learned there. Uh, I'm sure that's that wasn't a pleasant uh, meeting and it certainly wasn't going to be an email uh, <laughs> by any means. But thank you so much, Eric, for uh, for coming out today. Uh, obviously, I think people know where to to reach you on, on FreightWaves.com, but give them, give them your, uh, your contact info in case they don't. Yeah, FreightWaves.com. Uh, also, I write a lot on the sister site, AmericanShipper.com, because I'm doing a lot of international air cargo work there. And my contact information is at the bottom of stories I write. I'm also on Twitter at Eric Reports and on LinkedIn. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, man. And uh, go cover some air freight. <laughs> yeah, enjoy it. That was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. I have, look forward to it next time. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime. do. Well, there you have it. Air Cargo's uh, Haywire. You're going to pay a lot for it, FedEx. A little bit of a mess. But we've got just under 60 seconds to go, Anthony yes. Smith. Thank you so much for watching. we got one question to ask. You know it's our debate-anomics. Got to ask it real fast <laughs> Let's before go. we say goodbye. Thanks, everybody, for watching. Have a great week if we don't get to it. But would you rather have a chef or a maid? I'm going with chef. So you'd, you're the guy that doesn't like food, and you're going with chef. Yeah, because if I had a chef, like I feel like I would eat a lot more healthy, make a lot more healthier decisions mm -hmm. when I do eat. Mm -hmm. And that would kind of curtail like, oh, I'll just go to McDonald's or Chipotle or Taco Bell. It's like, no, I got a chef. I'm going with made. I want somebody to clean my house. Mm. <laughs> I want my, I enjoy making the food. Studio living eliminates <laughs> a lot of that. Yeah. Or yeah. one apartment, small bedroom. Also, right. hot take. All Italian food is just repetitive. We're it's not letting noodle, you talk. We're not letting you talk sauce. about it. We've already we've already discussed this. Copy paste copy paste. Go drink your